and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. This is episode 14, and we are moving forward. This week, Mitch joins me from Planet 5D. Mitch, what have you been up to, man? This is Planet 5D. No, it's not. It's DSLR Film New Podcast. It's not Planet 5D, but we're going to play with some new sounds this week and see how well this works out. Mitch has got an entire soundboard over there now. and uh, Yeah, it's all in software, too. So uh, I had it crash on me earlier today. So good Lord, let's pray that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, myself, I've been in the medical experiment category all day long. Um, yeah. I started at 8 this morning, and here's my secret medical ID bracelet uh, testing and probing and everything else. Don't worry, I'm healthy. <gasps> Found out that He's I'm good probed. to go. And I'm not pregnant, so... <laughs> So let's get that out of the was way right now. Was it an alien probe or was it just a normal probe? Oh, man. It, you know, I, every time you do one of these, your yearly physical is just kind of like, you're not really up for it, but you're supposed to do it because it makes you healthy. And I do it, so <laughs> apparently it keeps me healthy. I don't know. On that note, uh, anything else exciting going on, Mitch, before we roll into the news? Well, let me just tell you, cars suck. I hate cars. You're still having car Passion. problems? Oh, yeah. it It's... It it was bad last week, and it's gone from bad to worse. I spent $900 on getting it fixed this week, drove it home, drove it the next day. Guess what? The speedometer doesn't work, and now the check engine light is back on. So I'm, like, really fit to be tied. I spent $900 to get the check engine light to go off. A friend of mine said, just put a piece of black tape right there on your dashboard and <laughs> fix it that way. It's a lot cheaper that way. Yeah, vehicles can always be an issue, man. Um, I finally, I pay for the warranty when I get a new car. So that way they continue to take care of it until I trade it in for something else. I didn't used to do that, but anymore, I don't want to have to worry about it. And they got that super awesome clause where if your car breaks down, they just give you a rental the whole time. So then you're good to go until your vehicle is fixed. Uh Uh-huh. And you're paying for it through the nose. Yeah. Yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) On that note... Time for the news. This seems to be a lens week here. We've got a lot of lenses to cover and a lot of different companies talking about new lenses. First up on the list is Kiowa Promenar M43 lenses. They were announced earlier this week, and it looks like a company that was formerly known for their CCTV lenses is now going to be releasing three new manual focus M43 lenses. We've got an 8.5 f2.8, we've got a 12mm f1.8, and a 25mm f1.8. These lenses are pretty interesting, and if you take a look at the show notes, you'll see that they have multiple colors that you don't normally see on any lenses. Uh, Green is a good example here. One of their lenses is green. At first I was shocked, but now it's kind of starting to grow on me. I kind of actually do like the green and black combo. I'm not a hunter or anything like that, but uh, man, that's a nifty looking thing and a bit different. Uh, expected pricing on this is going to be somewhere in the range of 1000 to $1,700. The only pricing I could actually find were European prices. So that's a convert to American dollars right now. And I believe the, the exchange is like 1.3 or 1.4. So that could be in flux. No word yet on the actual date for release, but they are starting to show these off. Mitch, what do you think about these guys? Well, if you've never seen a green lens, it's about time, right? <laughs> uh, 
this close know, to St. Patrick's really Day. About them. I mean, my star is an 8.5 millimeter. That's pretty wide. Yes, it is. The wide one is probably the most interesting to me, but it's still f2.8. And, you know, with the Olympus uh, 7 to 14 f2.8 coming uh, later this year, I might hold out for that because that's also going to be in the probably fifteen to sixteen hundred dollar range, and one prime versus a zoom. I'll probably go with a zoom if they're both f two eight. I know you. You'll go with them all. Come on, tell us the truth, and you'll go green on all of them, right? So they all three come in green, silver, or black. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, the zoom ring on these guys, or excuse me, the focus ring on these guys looks pretty similar to the stuff that you find on the Voigtlander lenses. And the build and shape of these is also pretty similar to those and uh, some of the uh, SLR magic lenses that you see in the manual for- focus M43 format. So if you're in the market for something really wide, I believe these are going to hit Europe first, and then they'll be coming to the United States at some point in the future. Moving on down the line to even more lens announcements, Sony has announced a new range of E-mount, and these are full-frame lenses. Uh, We've got a 28mm f2 for $450. We've got a 35mm f1.4 for $1,600. We've got a 90mm f2.8 macro for $1,100. And then a super zoom, 24 to 240mm, 3.5 to 6.5 at a thousand dollars mitch full frame lenses are these gonna start sort of competing with uh, canon's offerings well you know for the sony a7s these would be perfect and i'm sure they're going to be sucked up by a lot of people who are getting those particular cameras because sony's starting to put out a lot of full frame cameras these days I'm looking at the pricing, and that's the, probably the biggest negative for me. Anything that uh, Sony releases with the word Zeiss stamped on the side of it seems to double or triple the actual cost of the lens. One of the ones I've always had my eye on is the Sony 55mm f1.8, but then it's an f1.8, and the Nikon and Canon 50mm f1.8s are what, like $100, $120? And I know this is metal, and it's got better lensing and stuff like that, but... It's a $700 lens because it says Zeiss across it. And that's uh, it's really frustrating for me. Um, I still don't actually own any native uh, E-mount full-frame lenses for the Sony a7S. I've been adapting or using those Minolta lenses. I am interested maybe in the 28mm, but as we fly through all these lens announcements, one of the things that is interesting about full-frame Sony e-mount lenses is that the folks over at dp review basically did an interview with the ceo of sigma and he mentioned the possible release of some sony e-mount lenses from sigma's art line of lenses and i've got the questions and answers here uh the question they asked um let me see i'll start from the beginning a lens like sony's zeiss 55 millimeter f1.8 from the fe mount is optically superb but quite small and light if you were to design art lenses for that system, uh, would you try to strike a different balance between quality and size? His answer was yes, and that right there is the shining bit about possibly getting some lenses 
and I think that's kind of what they're hanging their hat on. But he goes on to say that they also have different segments where interest might be more motivated by the size or offerings. Uh, Sony already has a 55mm F1.8, which is nicer sized and reasonably priced, so why make another? Instead, maybe we could offer an F1.4 compared to an F1.8. That's a huge difference, so we're either making F1.4 or something different. Um, he's, it sounds to me like they're coming right out and saying, uh, we are planning on making some E-mount lenses in the future. Do you use any of, uh, or have you used any of the, uh, Sigma art lenses? No. None at all? You haven't even played uh, around with them? We've talked about that before. No, I'm a Canon guy. Okay. Although I'm, you know, the more I talk about it, the more I'm interested in the Olympus, which we'll talk about later, um, in this particular wonderful show. Uh, but at this point, I've just been a Canon guy. Sorry. Uh, no problem. The Sigma lenses, I've used a few of the Art Series lenses. They're 51.4 and they're 85.14. Uh, both of those are pretty good. There was an issue with the original 50 millimeter f1.4 from Sigma in the focusing department. Uh, some people reported uh, back focus issues with the 51.4 original. And now with all the Art Series lenses, Sigma has released a special a little USB tethered mount that you can use to fine tune the lens for your camera. There hasn't been a lot of complaints from people on their 35 F1.4, their 50 F1.4, and I believe they're they're going to be releasing a 85 1.4 art version that will also have those corrections built in. I'm excited about these for Sony cameras because these lenses are in the 450 to $700 range, and they're all really decent primes F1.4 all the way across the board, and that's cheaper than the Zeiss lenses that are offered. I don't need the Zeiss label on my lens, and I know that they do make good optics, but I think I would rather have a set of medium-priced primes for my A7S that are native as opposed to going with the more expensive Sony versions of those lenses. Well, I I know you're very excited about low-cost lenses, and I know there are also quite a few people who are very excited about Zeiss lenses. Uh, we recently have done a couple of surveys on Planet 5D, and Zeiss is coming in pretty well. Uh, I think last week when we talked about uh, the survey that I sent out about lenses was that Canon was number one, Sigma was actually coming in as number two, and Zeiss was number three for our readers Oh wow! in terms of popularity. So there are a lot of people that love Zeiss lenses. They're incredibly sharp, but like my father always used to say, you get what you pay for, sometimes... Not always. You could get some good lenses. I know you've got a lot of good lenses that are pretty cheap. Yeah, my collection's all over the place. But one of the things I'm happy with Sigma in their whole art system is that they've moved away from... Have you ever felt one of the old Sigma lenses? They they had like a really gross coating on them. Um, Whatever it was, it felt like almost like dry paper with like little lumps on it. Like somebody had done bad wall spackle on the, the lens co- uh, cover and casing. And they felt they felt kind of gross and kind of cheap. These uh, new art series lenses, they've kind of added a smooth finish to them and really cleaned up the design and the look. There was nothing wrong with the original uh, crop sensor 30 millimeter F1.4. Other than when you touched the lens, it felt kind of gross because it was rough and sort of like powdery feeling. The new version of that basically has 
very similar, if not the same optics, but it now has the smoother, nicer looking finish. And if you're trying to blend in these Sigma lenses with your Canon lenses, you know, paint one red stripe around it. And with the new look, you might even be able to get away with it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> but a uh, red stripe on it and everybody will think it's a Canon L, right? Yeah, I think that's where, well, actually, Rokinon and Simeon, uh or uh, Samyung, however you pronounce that, uh, those two those two brands, one of them has a silver line around it to look like Nikon's premium lenses, and the other one has a red line all the way around it to look like Canon's premium lenses. So they are kind of actually doing the, uh, look at me, I got a red stripe too. Yeah, yeah. And and soon we'll be in multiple colors, right? Green, <laughs> silver, blue. Have you ever seen, by the way, while we were talking about the green lenses, I, I forgot to talk about the fact that uh, you can get wraps. Have you ever seen these lens wraps where you can put, like, camouflage and... Yeah, I have, actually. There's a... Labels. There's jungle wraps, and there's also insulated wraps uh, for... A good example is the the seventy to two hundred millimeter f two eight. That's a honker of a lens, and it's white. So if you're trying to, I don't know, hide in the forest or you know do some sort of wildlife <laughs> photography, I've seen a lot of photographers that will wrap that, and they have two types. They have one that's like a, a cushy kind of sleeve thing, and I don't know if it's made out of uh, uh, the Kev or not Kevlar, but the, you know the stuff Gore Tex, the the stuff that keeps things warm. I've heard some people say there's a Gore-Tex version. I don't know if that's the case, but there's also kind of a decal version. Have you seen the decal one where it's just stickers that basically like stick all the way to your lens? Yeah, I, there are, I mean, you can actually get your own uh, website brand put on some of those and it looks kind of funky. It would be kind of cool to do your lens up as something else like a coffee cup or, you know, uh, that's the only thing clever I can think of right off the top of my head. So. <laughs> Well, you know, put some art on there. Make it a tattoo like your uh, like your skin, right? Yeah, and the, for the insulated versions, I don't really know. Does it? Have you ever had a situation where your lens got cold enough that it actually affected its operation? It depends. Um, I know a lot of the like astrophotographer kind of guys have warmers that they use because they're spending you know, an hour outside, two hours, several hours, taking long exposures. Uh, Ditto Gear actually was selling a product for a while, that I don't know if they still do, uh, where they were uh, created a heater so that your lens wouldn't fog up because with all the moisture uh, and, uh, you know, condensation and stuff. But at typical use, you and I, I don't think are to do it, but even even like uh, going to Antarctica, I think the lenses are going to be so cold. <laughs> The whole things are going to freeze up. Yeah, I've never had um, freezing weather affect my camera other than fogging over. And the fogging over is an issue if you're going from inside shooting to outside shooting. But for that, I just carry one of the, the terry cloth, the cleaners, to wipe it off until it kind of stabilizes in temperature outside and stops you know, sweating. I don't know what that does to the inside of my camera. It's probably not good. But I haven't suffered the repercussions of that yet, so no mold well, or mildew. The only mold and mildew I have is on my Tamron lens it's over here on the shelf that's still sitting there that uh, went through one of the water rides at an amusement park with me, and, and that didn't turn out very well. 
You know, I've actually splashed um, my Micro Four Thirds camera a few times, my GH4, that Olympus uh, 12 to 40 millimeter F2.8 that I, I use on it quite regularly. I took that through a waterfall when I first got it while I was in Iceland uh, testing it out, and uh, it held up really well to water. The only thing is, um, I was on a shoot on the beach uh, about four months ago, and I was shooting something that was kind of along the the sand and I was by the water and the wave picked up and splashed me in the entire camera and I was able to get it dried off really quick and it didn't affect the lens but now the hot shoe on my GH4 is a bit suspect there's um Uh-oh. A couple of spots up there where it looks like um, there's some oxidization. You know, it's got that like kind of white chalky stuff on it. And I don't use anything electrical on the hot shoe anymore because I don't want to break it. But uh, it's a little bit weird, but it held up to salt water. So, I mean, the GH4 is still a little bit well sealed, probably almost as good as my uh, 5D Mark II was, I suppose. Yeah, it's. Salt water is definitely hell on any kind of gear. Totally. Yeah, one of the things, um, and kind of we're, since we're off topic anyway, the uh, Olympus lenses have a better sealing system, from what I understand, than the Panasonic lenses. Uh, if you ever held the Olympus and the Panasonic zooms in your hand, the equivalent, uh, the Panasonic is a 12 to 35 and the Olympus is a, a 12 to 40. Uh, the Olympus is much more substantial. It's all metal and it feels really solid where the Panasonic is kind of plasticky. And in your advertisements for Olympus lenses, they have all these like, we have seals here and we have seals here and seals are over there and they're inside the lens. And don't worry, this is rated for dust and water and everything else. So I don't know if any of my Panasonic lenses would have held up to the same hit from the saltwater that the Olympus lens did. But the Olympus lens, other than having a slight... um, uh, it doesn't turn as smoothly as it did when I first got it for zooming, but uh, otherwise it's held up pretty well. So good job, Olympus, on your weather ceiling. Yay! Moving on down the line, we've got more lenses. This is no the Canon 11 to 24 millimeter f/4. This is a three thousand dollar, two thousand eight hundred dollar, something like that lens. Pretty expensive, but. Take a look at the show notes when you get a chance and look at the real real world tests. The lines at 11 millimeter are pretty darn straight in this. You don't get any of that sort of fisheye effect on the side. It is pretty sexy. Um, Petapixel and a few other places, I believe DP Review also has some images up. One of the things that they point out in their article about this lens, and you should also look at the comparisons because it's a this thing is a monster. It is very fat but uh for real estate photographers if you do a lot of stuff with a real estate agent a lot of times they want you to make small places look huge and at 11 millimeters you you can make a tiny little living room with a couch make like look like it you know just a amphitheater worth of space and they've got some examples here where he's shooting with the uh, 14 millimeter f2.8 and then with the 11 millimeter uh, range on the 11 to 24 and the room does look substantially bigger i mean it's ridiculous how wide that 11 makes the the room look mitch do you do any real estate photography <laughs> i'm just throwing random oh, stuff out funny. at you yeah 
yeah, you're just throwing everything at me today. Uh, no, I'm not doing any real estate photography. Uh, but I, I was uh, talking with my buddy uh, Craig, who runs Canon Rumors yesterday on Skype. And uh, he also runs, I don't know if you know this, but he also runs Can uh, Lens Rentals of Canada. Oh, I did not know and, that. Yeah, it's it's actually his wife is running that business. Uh, but, and I, I, I'm sorry, I should do the cash register. There it is. Um, he's he just got in the uh, the new Canon eleven to twenty four, and he was just really excited about it. And the, the Petapixel article that you've shown here in the show notes is just head over heels excited about this lens. So, and and the samples there are very incredible. It it, it looks like the room is about twice as big as it probably is. Yeah, it is really sweet. I uh, this is another thing where I just love wide angle and if this lens was not as expensive as it is, I would jump on it right away. <laughs> um unfortunately at almost $3,000, I can probably buy some other gear that's slightly more important to my collection than this 11 to 24 f4, but I still want it. I still want to yeah. have it. I might well, have to I rent mean- this guy. It's it's kind of funny because the the one picture on the Petapixel uh, site where they show you the beer can or the soda can that's on the oh, table, yeah. and then it looks like you know light years away from the lens, and then they did the uh, an iPhone photo of where how close the camera really was, and it's like two or three inches away from the soda can. It's like crazy. Yeah, the focus distance on this is pretty close. I, I was surprised yeah. how close they were able to get it to that can to take that shot. And that's one awesome thing to do if you if you have a really wide-angle lens and you have pets, to get that crazy pet shot where, you know, dogs and cats in general like to investigate things that are in front of them. So if you take your wide-angle lens wide, as wide as it'll go and get close to them and stay in that focal range, you can focus yep. on their nose, and it just gives you this crazy, like, the world is huge around them and it, the dog perspective, it's, it's pretty cool shot. And there's a lot of other things you can use that for. Real estate is a great example. I have been drooling over this lens since they announced it. I am not going to buy it, but, uh, I, if I find a good enough excuse to rent this lens, I will probably call in a favor or just pay for the rental. Um, one of those things, and this is actually a side side note here. I was talking to somebody, Uh, Last week, they sent me in a question and they wanted to know basically what they should do for this funeral that was coming up. And first, I, you know, I sent my condolences. I said, hey, that's really sad. But what he wanted to know was the funeral was going to be the close family members because the person that had passed away was in an area that was kind of inconvenient for the rest of the family to get to. So he was going to be taking pictures of everything. And he was agonizing and debating. He had, um, I believe he had a D, uh, a 70D, and he was thinking about buying a, a, a D7100 from Nikon because he had some Nikon lenses around to cover this uh, special family event. And I told him, hey, forget about those cameras completely. Don't go buy a new camera. Go to one of these rental places, and for about 50 bucks, you can rent a 6D body. For another $50 or $55, you can uh, rent the 24 to 70 And then for another 20 bucks or 30 bucks, you can rent the uh, 50mm F1.4. And there's even a little bit of room, a wiggle room in there to maybe add like a flash unit if you need to or something like that. And your total cost is going to be 
160 bucks or so. And these lens rental places, uh, lensrental.com is one of them. Uh, Borrowers has a a good program. There's a lot of places out there. And they can send you that awesome kit to go cover whatever life event that you have. And sure, it's 200 bucks, but then you have the right tools. You have the best lenses you can get. And he was going to use kit lenses. So, I mean... Why would you go with the kit lens when you can get a hold of some of this stuff? And I don't think enough people consider renting. Renting lenses is such an easy way to go when you just need something for a small project. And filmmakers and um, everybody else, man, it's like well, you were saying. You have um, these family events that you you like to cover. Do you rent any lenses? Like you were talking about wanting a little bit more reach. What about uh, the two hundred to four hundred? I mean, rent that, bring it in, and just shoot the heck out of the you know the people on the on the field i have actually done that several times uh well like at my daughter's dance re- recital uh i rented several lenses to to get in there and to be able to shoot uh you know especially in an auditorium where it's dark i needed the, the really fast lenses um people do not realize I, the the difference is though is and and as as a plug I seem to be stumbling a lot today. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. Maybe it's because it's afternoon instead of morning. Sorry about that. Uh, That's fine. Lens Pro to Go is uh, one of my favorite places. There's a plug. And I looked into renting at my local brick-and-mortar shop. And I would love to, to support my local shop, but with Lens Rentals, you know, .com and all of these places, you get the you, you go on the website, you order the stuff, they ship it to you FedEx, comes in a box with a shipping label, you, you you use them for a couple of days a week, whatever you need, you put everything back in the box, you slap the shipping label on the top, and you send it back. You don't even have to drive anywhere, it comes right to your door. And it's cheaper, it's less expensive than at least at the times that I looked, than going to my brick and mortar store, which is two miles away. Um, so, you know, bless their hearts. I know they do a lot of good support locally, and I do encourage people to check out their local camera stores where they're available. Uh, but if you're out in the boonies or if you need something quick and easy, renting from a place like Lens Pro to Go is just simple. It's so easy, and I've done it quite a few times. We did it for our family vacation last time I went because I wanted, like you said, extra reach, and I didn't want to go buy another lens. Uh, so... Yeah, there's a lot of options out there. If you live in a city, man, you have a ton of choices as opposed to where, like I live out in the middle of nowhere, mailing the lens to me is the only way I'm going to get it. Right. And and the other thing about them, at least in the United States, and I know there are more cropping up around the world. Uh, I know there are several up in in England now. Um, I don't know about Europe, but uh, the fact that they're staffed with really good people i mean you can call and ask and say well i'm gonna go like to you know yosemite what kind of lenses should i take and they ask you what body you know so they have the skill to help you figure out what lenses you may even need so it's great 
Great and service. they also, if you can get into like, um, well, B&H isn't necessarily a small local store, but they have really good help too. Um, a lot of these camera stores will have a guy that, you know, either used to shoot or still does shoot professionally for other things. And this is sort of his part-time job. So he's able to answer questions about your camera, answer questions about lenses. If you're not really sure about setting up your camera or how to adjust your ISO or some of the features are kind of um, hard to understand for you. If you go in, a lot of times they'll have like, a, a once a week training class or they'll have uh, uh, somebody there that if you're buying something they will they'll gladly sit down and walk you through everything that you're buying so that when you're done you know how it all works whereas if you just go to Amazon or eBay or any of these other places and buy a new camera outright you you don't really get that so you either need to know what it is or you better be ready to learn what it is and how to use it uh, right away the other thing to check out, and I don't know if they do this in your area, Mitch, but in Denver, Colorado, once a year, the local camera shops get together and they do a sort of benefit thing with the zoo. And for $20 admission for any photographer, I, I think it's 20 it might be 25 now, but uh, they let you in and they have basically a giant table full of lenses. And as long as you stay inside of the zoo and pay the admission to the zoo, you can take any one of those lenses off the table and go shoot all over the entire zoo and then come back to that table, turn it in and get a different one. And they let you do this all day long. So it's a whole day of basically playing around with any lens you can think of. And you're in a zoo with animals and like, you know, forested areas and stuff like that. So you can get a lot of really cool shots and you get a lot of opportunity to really play around with that stuff and and get used to the lens and decide if it's what you need. That's cool. I've never heard of that. What's it called? Uh, I don't remember the exact name of it. The one that I know of in my area is at the Denver Zoo. And uh, I used to be Wolf Camera that sponsored it, but I, I believe the... Uh, name of the company has changed that normally sponsors it, but uh, it happens every every year, and I believe it's like uh, late in the fall when they do that when like zoo attendance is down. I'll look right. it up and see if I can add it to the show notes, but I'm pretty sure they have something similar to that in Times Square in New York or in, uh, not Times Square, um, what's the park in New York, the big one? Uh, Central Park? Central Park, thank you. Yeah. Uh, why that's escaping me today. Um, th- I believe they have something similar in the Central Park area and they kind of fence off a section. I don't know every place that they do this, but I've heard about it happening in Chicago and in a few other major metropolitan areas. So talk to your local uh, camera store and maybe they have an event like this, or maybe they have like a train the trainer type of thing where they, you know, do classes for like 50 bucks or 20 bucks and and let you play around with the camera store's lens collection. Uh, If you can get in on any of that, it's a really great way to play with a lot of really cool glass. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Now moving on down the line and we're changing from lenses here because we've covered a lot of lenses. We've got lenses anymore. Now we've got some corporate buyout business to talk about. <laughs> uh, Viatech, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, they're known Viatech. They're yeah. known well for buying out uh, Manfrotto and a number of other uh, equipment manufacturers, tripods, and so on. They recently bought out uh, Small HD. When was this? Um, uh, like three weeks ago or four weeks ago that they bought out Small HD. 
Oh, that's it's actually been a month and a half now. Gosh, time flies when we're having fun. So a month and a half ago, they bought out Small HD, and now they buy out Teradek as well as Paralynx. Uh, those are both companies that provide wireless systems for HDMI transfer of video. Are we going to see? Let me let me clarify something. They bought out Teradek last fall, so that was a long time ago. Yeah, uh, that's true. Paralynx was just recently acquired like this week. They just made the announcement, yeah. So they now own the vast majority of these uh, wireless transmitter systems. They own a major uh, screen provider for uh, filmmakers. Are we going to see a wireless integration of the small HD monitors with maybe a Paralynx unit built in so that it's all in one? Uh, I would love to see something like that, and Lord knows what they're going to do. Uh, I actually talked to uh, Michael Galen, who is uh, works for Teradek. Uh, I always work with him at NAB. Who, you know, they do the big glass booth, and Michael uh, and I and Michael Artsis do a live show, which we'll talk about as NAB gets closer. Uh, but there, I asked him. I said, you know, these two companies. Teradek and Paralynx are doing very similar things. Do you think that Vitek is just going to squish them into one unit or not? And his belief is uh, that they're going to keep them as separate entities because Paralynx tends to deal with uh, a slightly different consumer uh, base than Teradek does. Teradek is going more cinema, whereas Paralynx is, is lower end and so he thinks they're going to stay kind of separate. But with uh, Vitek owning like 15 cam- companies now, I mean, they loan uh, light panels and, like you said, Manfrotto. And it's not Tiffin, but there's another. Uh, well, they own uh, in the tripod okay. department alone. They own O'Connor. They own Gitzo. Uh, right. uh, I, I never pronounce that right. Is it Gitzo? Is that how you say it? G-I-T-Z-O? They, yeah, Gitzo works. And a couple others. So they have a, um, a huge chunk of from because that's kind of the high end tripod down to the mid range and lower price tripods. And it seems like with the Teradek and um, Paralynx, you're kind of seeing the same thing. Teradek, like you said, is the is the kind of uh, top end. Their units are in the two or three thousand dollar range, whereas I believe uh, Paralynx lowest offering the Arrow. If they still have that out, I don't know if it's still available or not. That was in the nine hundred or eight hundred dollar range. So there's definitely a price difference between the two. Yep, and and it's interesting because uh, I think Vitek is ending up consolidating a lot of the business functions. Like uh, Michael Kaylee uh, used to work strictly for Teradek, and I think now he's going to be doing more promotion for several of the other brands. So they they kind of maybe are are working the back office stuff in consolidation there, but there's still in keeping most of these brands separate, but it does, like you say, allow for the opportunity for some intermingling of some technology that maybe wouldn't have happened before. We'll just have to see. Well, there are a lot of ways to save, even if they don't uh, combine products. You know, if their manufacturing facilities can be done in one place as opposed to multiple places. And like you said, the sales team is a, a big thing. If each company had its own sales team, that's a lot of overhead 
for each of the companies individually, but if they can combine it into one group, they can have a larger sales team, A, and still cut down on the the number of people that they're employing and still maintain the amount of interactive with interaction with the public. Also, for events like NAB, I mean, maybe we'll see all these booths kind of crammed together and they'll get a, a larger buy-in for their tripod and lenses or uh, tripod and monitors and all that stuff. They do tend to be very close together at uh, NAB. Although most, I mean, if you don't know that Vitek owns them, you probably don't really realize it because each one has its own separate little section like every other booth does. Now, speaking of Teradek and uh, uh, Vitek property, let's talk about this next article down here. The Teradek uh, video is a V-I-D-I-U, video maybe. the video, yes. The video, I was looking at this because that was announced um, earlier this week. And then also the Broadcaster Mini. The Teradek unit is a HDMI transmitting device that basically beams your stuff out via Wi-Fi to uh, tablets, and then they have a controller app of some kind that goes along with that. The Broadcaster Mini does a similar thing, um, not quite the same because it looks like Teradek has some advanced software options for switching and so on that you can incorporate into that. But the price difference here, we're talking two ninety five for the Broadcaster Mini and four ninety nine for the Teradek uh, Video. What do you know about no. these, Mitch? Because they look really similar. They are somewhat similar, and I first of all will say that I'm not an expert in all of this wireless technology yet, but. The more it's coming about, the more we need to learn it and use it. And uh, just as a clarification, because I hate, I love, I love clarifying stuff for you. We're actually talking about the Video Mini, which was announced this week. Yes, they did ha- already have the Video, and so there, this is a Mini, and then the um, the other ones also the Mini. I have to switch pages because I've all of a sudden can't. The Broadcaster Mini. Yeah, that's right. I, I left the Mini out of the show notes. Right. Uh, the Mini broadcast, the Broadcaster Mini. Oh, they also have a Broadcaster Pro, and Teradek has the Video, and then the Video Mini. Right, and Teradek has a, quite a few other things. They have the Cube and the whatever. I've forgotten. I, there are so many of them. Yeah, uh, but the the key here that I really think, and there's there is a price difference. Uh, but the video mini can serve up to four different cameras. And let me rephrase that. So, so with the video mini, you have to also buy the iPad slash iPhone app, right? Yes. Which is the controller function and the controller function. It, I mean, it's $99. So the app itself costs you, but you buy the app. And let's say you buy four of the video minis and you're a very rich young man and you've got a lot of money to throw at a particular product. So you can control all four of those video minis with one iPad app and then broadcast that out, okay? Now, that's different, I believe, than the Broadcaster Mini, which is Livestream's product. Because the light, the broadcaster mini can only handle one camera. That's it's correct. Just one camera out, and so yes, the video mini costs more, but it also, like you said, has more functionality. Can control up to four cameras. 
And the other functionality that's in there that, that I haven't totally understood, but yeah, I was talking to Michael Arts about this yesterday. Uh, and again, he's my co-host on the NAB live show. Uh, he says that the thing that's really cool about the video mini is that it is using your cell service. And so you can actually go out and, and you're going to have a little bit lower quality, obviously, because you're not going to be using Wi-Fi. But the Broadcaster Mini doesn't use cell service. It only uses Wi-Fi, my understanding. And therefore, if you need to be out in the wild and have cell phone service, or if you're at NAB, for example, and you don't have access to Wi-Fi, I mean, the Wi-Fi usage at NAB is insane. Of course, cell usage at NAB is also crazy, so you may not have a great cell signal. But you can do, and we're, we're, Michael and I are talking about possibly doing a broadcast from the outside with the video mini live through the cell service. So we're going to experiment with that and see how well it works. Now I'm, cool. I'm looking into the uh, broadcaster mini just to, to kind of see what the differences are. And it does look like the broadcaster mini uh, with their app also available. Uh, it sends the video to your phone and then your phone sends it out. Is that how the Teradek works or does the Teradek actually have a adapter or a, um, a cell phone modem built into it. Uh, I believe it's going out through your phone. Uh, no. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I haven't, I haven't gotten completely into the whole thing, uh, but I didn't see, I didn't see uh, a cell option on the live stream, but maybe I just missed it. Yeah, I'm looking at both of them side by the side, and the Broadcaster Mini and the Teradek uh, Video Mini uh, both uh, basically set up a hotspot. Your phone connects to it, and then they send out your video via your cell phone's connection is what it looks like. Uh, I don't know as much about the Teradek uh, Video, but uh, the Broadcaster Mini uses your cell phone or a Wi-Fi network. Uh, to connect. So that part looks pretty similar. The part that caught me yeah. off guard when I was staring at both of these side by side is that the graphics on the actual device itself uh, looked so similar to the, each other that the, that I was, you know, I was like, well, wait a minute, were these made in the same place? And then one company just didn't want to spend quite as much money. And so that's the broadcaster mini. And then the company that thought they wanted to add a few more features Teradek makes the you know the video mini because uh, even the battery indicator and the the circle that's on the Teradek th those are all on the mini so it's like man these guys look really similar what is going on they here do. you know and even their pro I'm looking at the Broadcaster Pro and the uh, Teradek Pro and they both have that kind of um, display screen with the transmit rate and how long you've been live and the start and stop and the menu system. These do look like they're cut from the same cloth. I wonder what the story is behind that. Well, it's it's quite common for people to purchase stuff from original equipment manufacturers, OEMs. Uh, it's it's actually if you and I think you've noticed it too before in some of the reports you've done on monitors. Uh, you know the or LED lights, for example, those are quite commonly made by a small group of companies uh, and then sold and put a label of XYZ company on the top. I'm currently using oh, so. an Apple uh, B-Stock panel 
that was shoved into a brand that is basically it goes to Shimamon. Shimamon. I'm gonna actually flip this around so you guys can see that Shimamon. This is a 2560 by 1440 uh, IPS panel and. When Apple first released their 2560 uh, 25 by 1440 panel, theirs was $1,000. And the panels that did not make the cut for Apple's Q&A or QA ended up going into these, and these are $300. And the screen looks nice, but it comes in a really cheap plastic case. It's missing speakers. There's buttons on the case that don't actually do anything at all. They're just on the case. And the only way to color calibrate it is to hook up uh, something like one of those uh, uh, Spider 3 or Spider 3 Pros or Spider 4s right. to like color calibrate the screen. But once you do that, it looks beautiful. So that's a good example. I also pulled the card on, um, I believe it was, actually I've got it right here, the uh, Aspen Lav Mics. Theirs look incredibly similar to JK's Lav Mics. These are $60 and the uh, JK Lav Mics are $30. They have the same clip. The only thing that's different is the Aspen uses a little bit thicker uh, cable wire than the uh, JK, so you're paying an extra $30 for the possibility of maybe a little bit of noise rejection if you have your cell phone next to the cable. Otherwise, spend less and get the same thing, you know what I mean? Yep, yep, absolutely. It's just like getting the generic brand when you go to the grocery store and buy cereal. Either way, though, I think both of these, uh, Teradex offering as well as uh, the Broadcaster Mini, they both look pretty cool. And for yeah. two ninety five and four ninety five respectively, or four ninety nine respectively, they they will probably find a home for a lot of people. Um, in the past, people have been using hacks like the uh, USB tethering for Canon cameras to broadcast your video, but you're talking frame rates of like fifteen frames a second and huge delays. I'm guessing there's still going to be a little bit of latency on this because it is using Wi-Fi, but with this sort of thing, at least now you'll have a full frame rate and transcoding happening inside of the device before it's sent over Wi-Fi to go back to your device to monitor. So that's really cool. And, you know, 295 that's about the price of what you'd spend on, I don't know, a panel or a monitor or something like that. And you probably already have a tablet or a cell phone in your house that you could use to monitor your video. Yeah. My understanding was that these boxes, at least on the Teradex side, are not specifically designed to do monitoring. I think they want you to buy the more expensive one, like the video or the Bolt. Okay. Um, I don't understand the the scientific uh, behind it or the science behind it, I should say, uh, because uh, they just. Michael said that these aren't specifically for monitoring. The app is there; you can see what's going on in the app, but you're not getting a full HD signal when you're watching it inside the app. Oh, okay. I. So again, there's there are so many little technical nuances here that have to be learned just by using them, and we haven't gotten our hands on one yet. Uh, but I, I I have to be I at least have to throw that caveat out there that I'm not sure that you can do full monitoring with this. Now, if you don't care if it's 480, maybe that's all right. You know, maybe you just want to make sure that the signal is working and what's going on as opposed to having a full HD signal. If you want a full HD signal, I know you've got to go into the more expensive units. Well, the uh, 
the Broadcaster Mini, it is doing a ton of compression on the fly inside the device. So just like the Logitech webcam that I'm using right here, uh, this is the 930E, if anybody is wondering. That thing, the reason it's so great for this sort of application is because inside of the box itself, it has a transcoder that's taking the HD signal that's coming in and dropping it down to something in the 2 to 4 meg range and then sending it out. The Broadcaster Mini states in the, in the spec list that it's basically taking whatever it's getting from the HDMI port and compressing it down to a 4 megabit per second signal, which is pretty highly compressed. Um, I believe the compression used on YouTube is in the 6 or 8 megabits per second range, so you're going to be crunching your video up further than you would if you were uploading it to YouTube. So for recording purposes, probably not great, and for any sort of major accuracy, um, I'm guessing you're going to be a little bit out of luck. But it's still pretty cool that they can yeah. send this stuff over Wi-Fi. So definitely check both of those out. Um, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, Mitch has a really good write-up over on Planet 5D on that Teradek uh, Video Mini and a Broadcaster Mini. I did not actually find any write-up. I got an email directly from them about their device. So that's how I ended up knowing about that. Um, one more thing on the list, and this is actually really cool before we move down the line. And uh, this is the GH4 12 to 35 millimeter F28 OIS versus Olympus EM5 Mark II. Now, the reason they're using that specific lens is because the GH4 does not have in body camera stabilization. But a lot of people really think that the lens stabilization that's available with uh, Panasonic lenses is really awesome. The Olympus, on the other hand, has in-body five-axis stabilization, and this video, and you can find that in the show notes, is a really telling story about how good Olympus is doing image stabilization. Mitch, did you watch this video? I watched it. I did not watch every second because it's like 20 minutes or something. It's crazy long. I played uh, it in the background but... while I was you know, doing breakfast this morning. I loved it so much. And and the same, it's kind of awesome because the first half of the video is the two cameras side by side. I don't know how they mounted them, but they're obviously mounted together. Uh, the person who shot the video is is outdoors on a bridge somewhere, so you get a really wide vista. And then you have him run up and down the staircases, and, and so you get to see very shaky motion in the GH4 versus the Olympus, which is pretty dead gum steady. It's pretty amazing. And then the second half of the video, they actually put, um, and why am I not coming up with it? The stab software stabilization. What was it? What's it called? Uh, image stabilization. Uh, it's uh, warp stabilization, I believe is the warp Adobe version. Yeah. Uh, it's the Adobe. And, and even that did a horrible job, relatively speaking, of stabilizing that footage compared to the Olympus. I mean, the Olympus, with the, the sensor stabilization built in, is just blowing me away. Yeah, so what the mounting setup that Mitch is talking about, they actually bolted basically a single rod, and they bolted both cameras to that rod, and then they had a small monopod with a handle attached to that. And then the guy just starts walking around with it, and the cameras, since they're both mounted exactly to the same plane, are experiencing the same amount of motion, the same amount of vibration and everything else. And he's turning corners and walking downstairs and doing all these you know, moves with the cameras. And the GH4 and 12, uh, 12 to 35 millimeter F2.8 is just kind of falling apart. Whereas the Olympus uh, EM5 Mark II just... It's so smooth and silky yeah. and everything. Oh, man. 
it really even okay one thing though and i don't did you notice this the video quality was there to me it seemed like there was a bit of a difference in image quality from the olympus to the gh4 but the olympus was so much smoother did you see that or was i just imagining that I, w- I was curious about it, and I, d- I didn't spend a whole lot of time examining it side by side. But the problem with this particular test is that both cameras don't have the same lens attached. That's true. So, I mean, I've been beaten about the face and the head several times where I've tried to do a side-by-side comparison and post it on YouTube, and, and everybody screams at me, you didn't use the same lens. So if you're not using the same lens, how can we tell the difference? So that's the thing that bothered me about this test. I did notice, like when they stopped and looked at the that sign that had the lettering on it, was yeah. Japanese and English, there were certain segments of that that the Olympus looked fuzzier. But when the camera was absolutely stable, they both looked equally as sharp to me. So I think there's a little bit of... Uh, fuzziness that comes in from the stabilization of the sensor itself while it's the camera's physically moving a lot. But again, I haven't had my hands on one, so I don't know exactly what's what's causing that. But I did notice that they weren't exactly as sharp, uh, and I wondered if it was the lens because they really need to be the same in order to really, really, really judge that. Well, not a, not necessarily the lens differences, but uh, the GH4 with the 12 to 35 millimeter with the IS turned on. When I tested that originally, uh, probably about eight months or nine months ago, the IS seemed to like really make the image for the GH4 softer, a lot like noticeably softer and fuzzier than I was expecting. Now, with the Olympus system, they're not moving a device inside the lens and vibrating it. They're actually physically moving the sensor around. So maybe you're right, Mitch. Maybe because the sensor is actually, you know, doing one of these as it's catching up with the motion, the actual movement of the sensor at 60 frames a second or 30 frames a second or 24 frames a second is enough to give a bit of motion blur until it really stabilizes out. The other thing that... uh and I, I was just going to pull this up because I don't have it in front of me right now, but weren't the two uh, different sides? Um, one, one is, it looks to me, the recording format, it says down at the bottom, it says 50 slash M slash 30P. Does the 50 mean the shutter speed? No, that's the megabits per second that oh, they're okay. capturing at. So, so they, what they didn't say was what whether both were set to the same shutter speed. Uh, so the the Olympus is set to uh, thir- uh, thirty meg Kodak at thirty p, and the Panasonic GH4 is set to fifty megabit Kodak at thirty p. So that may also be the reason that we're seeing a little bit of difference in image okay. quality. It does state here though that they're using the. Uh, Olympus 12 to 40 millimeter on the Olympus camera and the Panasonic 12 to 35 millimeter F2.8. So those aren't the same lenses, but for the most part, and I've tested these side by side, they're really close in image quality. Um, a lot of people would say that it's so close that, you know, they're, you choose which one you like better based on other factors besides the the lens quality itself. Right. I didn't find enough of a difference to to make that probably be my linchpin, but the Kodak that they're using that's a 
That's a fairly big difference in the amount of data they're capturing from one camera to the other. So very true. That could be it. And I didn't actually read through the show notes until um, Mitch mentioned them. I just watched the video on repeat a couple of times because I was like, "Wow!" I the yeah. Olympus uh, EM5 is one of those cameras that I've kind of I've hovered over buying like three or four times. And I was talking to Robert um, on Twitter the other day because Robert just got one in. He lives in Vegas and he gets to test a lot of camera gear. And he was telling me that he loves it for stills because even in low light, he gets better performance out of it than his GH4. But he was complaining about the menu system. He said the menu system was horrible to use. It was really cumbersome. And that for setting up anything with video, you were really just trying to get through to figure out where stuff was at to get it sorted. That yeah. sounds a little bit scary. I don't know if that's enough to deter people, though, with this sort of image stabilization. It's beautiful. Here's what I have to say about Ucky menus. There you go. There's some sound effects for you. Uh, I, I, I honestly have trouble with the Nikon menus, but I'm not like a native Nikon user. So when I go switch over to a Nikon, it's like, how does that work again? So if the Olympus is just really bad, I'm not looking forward to that. But again, I haven't had my hands on one yet, so I don't know. Even as a native cannon shooter, getting into some of those more uh, crazy back-of-the-camera menus on that last thing with the tools, and you start getting down, and then each one, you click on it, and then you have like eight other things inside of the thing. That's You know, I was trying to do some focus adjustments on a lens a couple years ago, and I messed around in that section of the menu system for... Oh, a good hour before I even figured out where I was at and what I was up to. It's very true. And I, there are certain functions where I can't find them once I've done them because you don't use them off enough. You're like, where in the world was that? Yeah. Magic Lantern was that way as well. If you're a Magic Lantern user trying to sort through like, okay, I just changed the headphone output level. Where was that at again? Yeah. And does the glowing light mean that it's on? And then sometimes you'd click on something and you'd get like a sub menu with like five things and a weird little set of circles. And you're like, which circle am I using here? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Now you've got something in the show notes here and this is from road and this is actually pretty exciting. Tell us about the uh, road reel project. They did this last year as well. And turned into what they're calling uh, the largest uh, film contest ever. Uh, They had entries from like 90 different countries and it's just crazy insane. And they were giving away last year, uh, well, I believe it was $100,000 in prizes. And this year they've doubled it. They're up at 200,000. And let me say that again, $200,000 in prize money, prize gear okay i don't think i don't think any of it's money i think it's all it's all gear but they've got red rock micro and they've got zeiss and they've got just bazillions of people that have donated gear uh for this particular contest and it's it's really rather simple it's a three minute submission can't be any longer than three minutes uh the only real caveat is that you have to use road gear and you do have to do a behind-the-scenes video with it as well, showing how you used some portion of uh, some piece of road microphones in order to shoot the short. But it's pretty cool. It's pretty simple to do, and your shot at some piece of two hundred thousand dollars worth of gear is pretty awesome. That is pretty sweet. Uh, one thing to note, guys: if you ever win any prizes, 
Make sure you have the money to pay the taxes on the prizes. Amen. Because a, a lot of these contests, and they're they're really awesome, and they give you a lot of gear and stuff, and that's great. But the problem you run into is whatever the value is for the prize you win, you have to pay whatever the tax amount is on that. And if there's no cash to go with the, the physical items that are being given to you, then you have to pay... I believe it's somewhere in the range of 25% up front. And then based on your total income tax, you have to pay that out for the cost of the items. That's why a lot of the people that win, like uh, I believe uh, the house channel or the home channel or whatever has a giveaway house where it's like a million dollar home, but no one ever ends up keeping the million dollar home because they they can't afford the taxes that they have to pay for winning a million dollar home because the tax is like 300,000. This isn't nearly as substantial, but that's a lot of really cool gear and a lot of stuff. And uh, you're probably going to have to sell a few things to pay your taxes (laughs) after you win this. So just keep that in mind that you don't get audited by the IRS if you're in the United States. Other countries, I have no (laughs) idea how that works. Um, So, you know, make sure you check with your tax laws. But this is really cool. Uh, Last year's Road Reel, uh, yeah, what, a thousand people, I believe, submitted or uh, uh, more than a thousand. And it's more than a thousand. It was some pretty cool stuff, and the winners, didn't they do a music video as well uh, in some yeah, they, sort of, or was that the same went, thing? That was that was the road, I think that was the same road real thing. I know road did something, maybe it was a different thing, but they they actually got to go shoot a video down in, in Australia. Yeah, I know there was a music video version as well, where they got um, a couple of uh, directors from various projects to come in and like work and kind of teach the person that won the contest and, you know, help them with whatever equipment they wanted and then like provide a band and then they shot an awesome music video. So Rhodes is really doing some really cool stuff. Um, They've really built up a lot of... uh, of happy customers in the film community and like stuff like the the video mic pro that i use the original video mic this uh, procaster that i have in front of me uh mitch is using a road mic they're really producing some good mics and uh on a side note road does not sponsor me i believe they are a sponsor of planet 5d so they do some good stuff and that's um that's me saying that without uh getting paid for it so I like road stuff a lot, and uh, they do some. Actually, I'm look, now I'm looking at my camera, and I, I have a road <laughs> logo like laying here in the background. So there you go, guys. Um, well worth investing in. Uh, definitely check out that competition. There is a lot of sweet gear in that short film competition, and it also gives you some practice to make a film. Absolutely. Now we yeah, have I'm saying to myself that it's something I ought to do. Yeah, I I don't know if they if um if I it would be fair for me to to work on something like this, but I kind of when I saw this, I was like I could do a three minute short that would probably get it placed in this. Think? You're not sponsored by them, so why not? That's true. Maybe I'll think about it. I'll talk to my guys yeah. and see what we can come some up with. Some horror thing where you chop some people up and there's lots of blood spurting everywhere. That would be really awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> maybe a little less blood and guts for something like this. I don't think I'm going to win anybody over with that. Well, I'm just mad because they didn't pick me to be one of the uh, judges. So <laughs> don't don't enter. Don't anybody enter because road sucks. No. Whoa, whoa. Now, speaking of disappointing, uh, we've got a few discussion topics, and we're running a little bit long, so I won't hit all no of way. them. But um, really? I've got this guy right here, and I was kind of. Super excited about this um, 
earlier last week, if you guys saw me kind of blogging and talking about it on the cast and some other things, this is the uh, small rig um, A7S uh, minimalist rig. And I've been using this for a couple days now because I just got it in. And here is the thing that I am very disappointed with. This is fully tensioned as tight as it'll go on the arm grip. And watch this. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So it'll hold itself in place as long as there's not a lot of force. But you start moving around... And it'll fall back and forth. Oh. And that is something that does not work for me. Um, I discovered this last night when I was testing different monitors with the A7S. I put the Must HD, um, I believe it's a 1280 panel, um, onto this camera. And that's, if you guys are familiar with the Must HD uh, display, it's a 5 inch or 5.6 inch display and it's got really good resolution, but it's one of the bulkier 5, five inch esque displays on the market. Has a two battery um, unit on the back, so it's a little bit heavier in that respect. It's a fairly large monitor, it's very thick, and it has a great sun hood that pops out, but the sun hood is also very thick and very bulky. And as soon as I put that on there, it nearly flipped off of the rig and flew down to the, you know, the bottom of the hang. And that is not good. So I've been emailing a small rig on this and, and kind of letting them know what's going on. And they did tell me that they are working on a fix for that. So there might be a solution Um, also one of the other things I found on this rig that, uh, you got to be careful with. And I thought I'd mention that I still like the design and stuff. I probably will not be using that arm in the near term, but if you look closely and I'll show you this for the audio listeners, we're at, um, an hour four. So you can check that on the video. There's a little plastic gasket right there. And that plastic gasket is kind of a tensioner to hold this clamp shut and it does a good job. But if you over tighten it, it will bulge out and no longer provide the same amount of clamping force on the deal. So with this clamp right here, when you want to attach it and I'll slide this on, on the video here, you want to just snug it up, but you don't want to over tighten it. And once it's snug, I'm just, you know, tapping this in a little bit. It's nice and solid and it doesn't slide around, but you don't want to crank on that. Cause if you crank on it, that uh, washer and that plastic bit there will, compress and then it won't do as good a job as clamping and that may be what happened with this uh, clamp right here i did not know that was a problem until i started playing around with this guy so they are working on it that is sort of disappointing and i'll mess around with it some more and i have a a a write-up on this coming up pretty shortly so that should be out today or tomorrow and i'll talk more about what's going on with that but yeah the evf from small rig not my favorite right now so hopefully they fix that or something uh, comes up that makes that a little bit better. Mitch, did you have anything else you wanted to touch on in the discussion topics? No, but I do have a pick when we get there. All right, let's move on to the picks then. <laughs> okay. Uh, for those of you who may be interested, uh, there's a company that actually is based here in St. Louis, and I've met them, and there are some really great guys called F-Stop Bags. Now, F-Stop gets used everywhere, so I kind of really am angry with them for having that name, but that's their own problem. Uh, they make some awesome bags, camera bags. And I have a backpack, and I won't try to go through and show you, but the thing that's really awesome about it is that the inside part is completely removable. So all of the places where you shove your camera, and, you know, the little widgets where you uh, stretch things apart and all that kind of stuff, 
that whole thing is an insert that comes out. And when I travel and I'm, I'm say I'm going somewhere for a day or a day and a half or two days or something, I can take the insert out, use that as my carry on with a camera gear in it. And then I also have the backpack where I shove my clothes in. So when I get to where I'm going, I take my clothes out and then I use the entire backpack as a camera bag. So that's really cool. What they have just announced is that they're doing a Kickstarter project where they call it the Kit Century, and that's S-E-N-T-R-Y, not Century. But so what they're doing, and you go look at the Planet 5D blog post, which is in the show notes. Uh, what they're doing is they're creating an RFID chip kind of process where you can you can chip all of the things in your kit. And then your iPhone or iPad app will tell you whether or not all your stuff is there or, or if something gets stolen while you're on set, you'll, oh, wow. you'll realize that somebody has taken something from your bag and you'll go running and screaming and go, who took my lens or whatever. It's a really cool concept. The second side of that is that let's say you are going to go out on a shoot and you normally would have you know, your 24 to 105 and a microphone and your 5D Mark III, you can set up a quote-unquote kit. And if you don't have all the pieces in your kit in the bag, you'll get an alert that says you're leaving the house without your battery and your microphone or whatever the pieces are that aren't in that particular kit. You can set up multiple kits in their software. So it's some really cool stuff. And I urge you to, to dive in deep. We don't have time to go into it right now, but the concept is really cool. And look at that over in Planet 5D, the kit entry, kit century Kickstarter project from F-Stop. And again, that's S-E-N-T-R-Y century, right. not the C version. Um, that looks really cool. So it's just RFID, right? So you can't do GPS tracking of the gear once it's stolen. Yeah. You just know that it's yes, gone. You can. Oh, you can. So yes. you can track it on top of. They have multiple different segments of this kit, depending upon which level you want to buy. The okay. first one is just simple, simple RFID with Wi-Fi or something. But the second upper level actually has GPS tracking in it. So yes, you can do that. Oh man, that is sexy. It's, That's a really good it is, deal. It's, it's a really cool project and I'm going to be working with them because like I said, they're here in St. Louis and I've met them several times. Uh, I, I hope to get in their beta project for that. So I'm really looking forward to see how that works. Now, not to quiz cool. you too much more on it. Uh, how do you power them? Are they just, uh, they're just powered by Wi-Fi signal or do they need a battery of some kind or how does it charge? So, so there's, there's, there's three components to the deal. There's all of the chips, the RFID chips or whatever, you know, okay. the other one with the Wi-Fi signal, however that works. And I'm not, again, an electronic genius there, but there is a unit that you put in your bag. It's a small, a little like sort of like about the size of a cigarette pack. That is the, uh, device that tracks all of those things and then of course the third part of the component is your iphone or your or ipad or whatever android device which has all the software and all that kind of stuff so so that's the it's the little cigarette device that's in your backpack or your bag or whatever and it doesn't have to be an f-stop bag you can put these things in whatever kind of bag you have so it's not just strictly up to their particular models uh, but that's the device that you have to have in your unit. And you're going to hide it somewhere so that most people, like a thief, isn't going to know if they take, you know, 
two lenses out of your bag, they think you know, think you're just stealing the lenses. But because they have left the proximity of that device that's in your bag, then you're going to get an alert on your phone that somebody just stole your lenses. And they'll tell you which ones they stole. That's pretty cool, man. I'm going to have to check that out. Cool. Uh, it is cool. And the tracking thing I'm also sure. is really nice because if you look behind me, these shelves full of gear are where my gear sits when I unload my bags. And uh, when I unload my bags, they just lenses and stuff go all over the place. And I'm not as organized as I could be with where my things end up. So then I'm like, yeah. man, I'm, I'm about to go shoot this project. Where did I put, you know, my 51 too? Where, where is that at? And like, I wander around back and forth for a half an hour or I keep my batteries, for example, in a bag. And the bag is like, I always throw the bag in with whatever camera uses that particular type of battery. And sometimes I'll take it upstairs or something to, to shoot something. And then I'll be downstairs packing a bag and I can't find the, that little bag. And it would be awesome to have some kind of ID tag on that so that I know where my freaking battery bag is when I'm looking for it. And on set, that's also an issue because man, people, when I'm like, Hey, grab a battery out of that bag. It's the Brown bag that says Canon LPE six on it. Get me two batteries out of there and then take these batteries and put them on the charger. Well, instead of doing what you asked to bring you the battery, they bring you the entire Brown bag and they're like, here you go. Now you don't have to worry about it. Well, then what you're shooting inside, you go to outside, you set the bag down somewhere and you're like, where the hell are my batteries at? I can't find them. So that's really cool. Um, I am, I'm excited about that one. Actually, I'm going to go check that out after the cast. My pick of the cool. week is this guy right here. And it's not nearly as exciting as Mitch's, uh, sweet lens tracking <laughs> system. This is a Polaroid pistol grip and you can buy these for about six to $12 on Amazon. And I'll have a link in the show notes there. It's basically a handle grip for something like your GoPro. So you can mount a GoPro on here and you can walk around like this if you want to. You can mount it to the bottom of a camcorder or whatever, but also the legs flip out on the bottom and you flip the legs out and now you have a basic, very simple tripod to set your GoPro up or set your camera up. So if you need to take a shot from somewhere or you want to stabilize the camera or whatever, you have these little wings that make it pretty easy to use. This is really cheap. It fits in your bag and it's got a quarter 20 thumb screw with a little nub in right here so that when you attach it to your camera, you can just screw this on, snap it into place and then walk around like so. It's not the most technically advanced device in the world, but for 7 to $12, it's handy to have, especially if you're a GoPro shooter and you just need to set the camera up somewhere and, you know, talk into the camera for a second or something like that. So definitely check that out. That's the a Polaroid pistol grip adapter, and they're available on B&H or on Amazon. Uh, both of Mitch and I's picks will be in the show notes. Mitch, where can people find you? Well, I don't know. There are several places where they can find me, but uh, there is a website that's called. It's also called. Planet5D. Oh, wait, is that the same name? Uh, Planet5D.com is where you can find me. I also have planetmitch.com, and I would like to issue a special goodbye, if I may, to all of our listeners because it's been a really great show and I enjoy talking to you. When will I see you again? Oh, never. Never. That's the worst never. I've ever heard. And you stole it from a movie. Thanks, DJ.
Mitch is getting a little crazy with the samples there. You can find me on DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can also find this podcast on iTunes or on SoundCloud or anywhere else that uh, podcasts are delivered under DSLR Film Noob Podcast. You can also check us out on r slash DSLR on Reddit. And be sure to swing by the YouTube channel to watch this live if you're not a regular listener and you prefer to view. All those things are great. And, of course... Mitch and I are both on Twitter, so go over there and interact with us. Like I told you in another cast, you can get a hold of me faster that way. I even have a guy right now that's hounding me to answer his emails via Twitter. So good job on that. That's very clever. I would have not thought to do that. On that note, thanks for listening to another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs>